what we should mention is that I almost I almost never see you out of prosthetics. I know, right? right. <laughs> so, so I'm like, I'm like a stranger sitting here in front of you right now. Well, sometimes when you come up to hug me or say hi, like I turn, I'm like, oh, uh, hey, oh, oh, you, right. oh, it's you. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, I've spent many rap parties on movies and TV shows over the years and reintroducing myself to the entire crew because it's like they never saw me. <laughs> Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And Anson... I was so proud of you, man. <laughs> I was. Not, I'm not anymore, but I was. What, what did I do to make you proud? Your Star Trek gig, man. Oh, right, right. I was so excited for you, but my second excitement was, oh, I get to interview Doug Jones. Yeah, yeah. You knew him through reputation. I knew him through reputation as well. Yeah. As a uh, former special effects makeup person myself, I belong to the Practical Effects Group page on Facebook. <laughs> And I love it. I love it. I can spend hours there. But whenever Doug comes up, he's like the patron saint of practical effects makeup. And it's such a specific kind of job. We had both assumed that he has some kind of physical acting training. I thought that he was a dancer. You thought, what would you put it? What was I, th- it? I thought he had studied uh, in at Lecoq in France, which is a... A physical school of acting that focuses on uh, mask clown work. Um, he does, though. He has a background as a mime. Oh, he does. Yes. Well, I'm getting to that. Yeah. Uh, but we had both assumed, you know, you assumed clown, I assumed dance, but something right. that he had started out down that road as like physical performance. And it turns out Doug was also surprised by where his career went because it's not where he thought it was going to go. My love and my push and my goal was to be a sitcom star. I, you know, I grew up watching, Oh, I'm, I, it was the funny shows and the, and the feel goods that made me, that inspired me to want to be on TV when I was a kid. Like what? Dick Van Dyke show, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart show, uh, Gomer Pyle, Gilligan's Island, anyone that, had, Oh, Oh, Barney Fife on, on Mayberry. Oh, come on now. Uh, yeah. Those characters were the ones that like made me, Oh, anything Jerry Lewis did, Danny Kaye movies. Um, uh, right. Yeah. The Red Skelton show. La, ah, yeah. yeah. So those people were not handsome leading men like Anson Mount, <laughs> but, um, but they were, uh, they were people that I could relate to that I was like, Oh, well, if they have a, if they, maybe I can be, I have a, there's a reason that I am who I am and how I am. Yay. So there's a place for me. Yeah. So, uh, that's, that's what, why I thought I was going to go out and be like the goofy next door neighbor on a sitcom. That's what I was after. Little did I know that the creature effects world would snatch me up as fast as they did. And then uh, I was like, well, I took a left turn, but oh, let's go. Let's see. Oh, they're paying. So I'll, I'll, I'm a whore. I'll do it. All right. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here today. It can't be ignored. One of the reasons Doug was snatched up by the creature effects people was because of his unique physical appearance. Uh, I was told early in the early on that my long skinny neck and my being six, three and a half and weighing 140 pounds does help. That's a very, that's a, and I've got a very small face, thin, you know, a thin boned, uh, in a tiny wrist, tiny ankles, that kind of thing. So you can put prosthetics on that and not get it too bulky. You know, I can be as thin as they want, or I, they can, they can bulk me up and I have been big monsters too. So it's all, I've been the whole gamut. 
Doug's time inside oversized costumes started early in college, where he studied mime. I had been a mascot in college I, I, at Ball State University in Indiana. I, I was Charlie Cardinal, so I knew how it was to... That was my first experience wearing a big suit of some sort and trying to animate it physically. He also has some contortionist abilities, which he's rather modest about. I never had a circus act. I never did like the full, you know, I, I, like these little Asian girls who can like kiss their own ass or whatever. I... I, I <laughs> I, I could, I'm more of a forward person who can put my legs behind my head, and then it's a party gag. And, uh, but, but my first agent was like, that's great. Let's put it You're a contortionist on my resume. Like, okay, oh, all right. So mime and contortionist became like my, my business card titles, basically. So it's, oh. But that, that, that got me into a lot of doors casting-wise for when I started in TV commercials. So what comes with that, with it, we want to, if they want someone with a mime or contortionist background, it often comes with a look that is not human. You know what I mean? So that's when I was introduced to the, the makeups and the costume wearing uh, was through TV commercials. My, one of my first gigs was I was a, a, a dancing mummy for Southwest Airlines. That was my very first commercial I ever booked um, back in 1986. Uh, then I did, my second uh, uh, creature booking was a, a, an alien from outer space for a Worlds of Wonder toy commercial. And that's when I met Steve Neal. Steve Neal was the one who created that alien look. And then he, he was creating a moonhead for McDonald's that became the Mac Tonight campaign, which was huge. Yeah, I remember that commercial like it was yesterday. Really? It freaked me out so much. Yeah, I, I get either love or hate for that for that <laughs> campaign. Yeah. Uh, you remember that commercial? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's a creepy big commercial. Big crescent moon with sunglasses on singing. Like, when the clock strikes, <laughs> hey, half past six, baby. Time to head for golden light. Now I'm sitting there wearing a big crescent moon head trying to make this musical number happen. And that campaign was hugely successful. It ended up running for 27 commercials over a three-year period for me. So that, I bought my first house with that. So, um and and that was like I was in my twenties, still going. This is a good gig. You know, I could do more of this. <laughs> you know? But it marked me as tall, skinny guy who moves well, wears a lot of crap on his face, and doesn't complain about it, which was the big one among the creature effects people. Because so many actors are like, "Get this off me! It's hot. It's sticky. Does it have to push there? Whatever." Yeah. And and I and I. I come from the Midwest, you know, and when uh, I was taught that when you say yes to something, you just you do that thing and you don't, don't complain about it. So I'm the one who said yes to, to wearing monster, uh, you know, crud on me. And, and um, so um, so that, that's what it, can, it comes with, with the deal. And just like that, a unique physical appearance, some mime training and an agreeable Midwestern personality conspired to recast this aspiring Barney Fife as a series of mythical creatures and monsters that totally obscured his identity. My, I've had some great titles over the years. Can I uh, list them all? Uh, I was also dead Iraqi soldier in uh, Three Kings <laughs> with George Clooney. Um, I was a thin clown in Batman Returns. Kangaroo man mutants in two movies, not just one. Two of them, yeah. It's a very popular hybrid. Yeah. I played two fishmen in my career now too. It's like I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm getting to the place. I'm old enough where I'm, I'm, I'm doing repeats. So. <laughs> and so, Doug went from role to role, strength to strength, creature to creature, until he met Guillermo del Toro. And there's so much to say about their working relationship that I'm actually going to save all of that for part two. But suffice it to say that eventually Doug put in enough hours and paid enough dues that he reached a point where he no longer had to audition. 
people were coming to him with creature ideas and relying on Doug's experience and talent to realize the characters for them. That was weird, yes. Um, I mean, not weird, but delightful. Uh, I did not have to audition for Star Trek Discovery. I got a call saying they'd love to see you. Uh, meaning just to come have a meeting and they pitched the show to me. <laughs> Can you imagine? I didn't have to tap dance for the, yeah, it was really, uh, it was, it was the sweetest thing ever. Um, but that recommendation came from Glenn Hetrick and Neville Page, who are the makeup creators. Uh, and once when they were developing or the look of Saru, that's when they started telling everybody in the production, you've got to get Doug Jones for this. That's, that's who came to mind when they were doing their, their conceptual art. Um, so that's kind of how I got in a lot of my jobs over the years. Uh, I've auditioned very little in the last 10 years, especially just because of people doing that. And I guess so I owe so much to the creature effects makeup people. And the creature effects people owe a lot to him. He is, by all accounts, such a pleasure to work with. The process of bringing a creature to life is so arduous that you really don't want anything making it any more difficult than it already is. And for those who don't know how creatures are made, I can give you a quick rundown of the art, which is a mix of art and engineering. You start with a concept, you start with a script, you start with a character idea, and then you cast an actor like Doug Jones, and then you cast that actor again, this time in some sort of flexible material like alginate or silicon, and then they have to stand very still while they go through an experience that feels a little lot like being buried alive. So if you're claustrophobic, this is probably not a good thing for you to do. And then a bunch of people work on your life cast with clay and they sculpt the thing. And then a whole team of people have to break those down into smaller molds, inject them with foam latex or silicone. I mean, this is a small industrial process that takes dozens of people weeks and weeks of hard work. Finally, they get to the first test fitting. And this is the second time that the actor will be interfacing with the creature effects people. And sometimes just the test fitting can be the most grueling part of the whole thing. The longest one I ever did, oh my gosh, was, um, I'm gonna say it was uh, in the eight hour range, something like that. No, maybe even closer to 10. But my name in the movie in quarantine was Thin Infected Man. That was a, a, a head to toe. I was wearing nothing but whitey tidy underwear that were kind of saggy and yellowed. And the rest was all painted or prosthetic pieces that, you know, made my shoulders more pointy or my, my pectorals more saggy or a little a pooch belly that had to glue onto me. So it was a lot of edges blended in and shaved skin being painted. And that, that took, I think that was a 10 or 11 hour test makeup. Then, uh, but like a character like uh, Abe Sapien from the Hellboy movies, Hellboy One, that was that became the longest day-to-day makeup application. That was about seven hours a day when I was just wearing my shorts. Just, just to get in the makeup. Just to get in it, yeah. So then you that that's that just starts your day. Usually it's a full work day to get into your makeup, and then you have to film ten to twelve hours, and then it's a two-hour makeup cleanup. Right. So that's getting the pieces unglued and scrubbed off of you. That's like a 19, 20 hour day. Done them often. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do 18 hour days often on those kind of movies. And so it creates a, you know, a four hours of sleep at night kind of a thing. Lots of forced calls. We call them when you don't get your 12 hour turnaround uh, as an actor. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I go through many movies sleep deprived and, and wishing to, to die. So. <laughs> <laughs> How would you think you would fare 
with the with the with the twenty hour day, seven hours of things being glued to you, two hours of it being scrubbed off, five hours of sleep, go back and do it again. I would not do it. <laughs> <laughs> the I easy see. answer. <laughs> I see. I wonder if Doug has considered that option. <laughs> oh, man. About, I don't know how he does it. How about don't? <laughs> and a lot of, you know, another thing that we didn't discuss is a lot of people think that you put these prosthetic pieces on and they're just there or the paint is just there. And it is a, there's constant maintenance throughout the day for these artists and the actor wearing these things that it, it glue is coming unglued, uh, paint is getting smeared, um, yeah, or makeup is getting, needs to be reapplied. The contact lenses have to come out in between takes and scenes. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's a, it's a all day work affair. It's not, it's not, um, uh, it's not a one and done kind of deal. I don't, I don't think most people watching realize how, um, kind of cut off from the world you can feel in, in, in some of these makeups and, uh, well, the way it, it just sort of robs you of all, so much sensory. It, it does a little bit. And, you know, I noticed this yesterday when you guys were visiting on set, uh, um, uh, Brandon, when you, you, uh, came to visit Anson and then I was, I, I met you yesterday on, on the set of Star Trek and, um, Sonequa, our lead actress, Sonequa Martin-Green was able to come talk to you guys for a long time and, and banter back and forth and have high energy with you. And, and although, and I had to go during that, I was sitting off to the side, closing my eyes, keeping my energy for the next scene or the next, the next moment on film. Cause that's what I have to do. I don't hear as well as everybody else. I'm wearing contact lenses, so I can't even see you as well as everybody else. And, uh, and I, and I'm, and I'm physically need to save some energy. So, so the banter, the banter off camera, I don't have the luxury as much. I am more isolated than, than most other actors, uh, in, in the off time. It's, it's, it's a grueling process and which makes anyone wonder, how does he deal with it? The soul of a dove. <laughs> Why are you so good in the chair? Or how, oh, like, you, you wanted me to boast about myself? No, no, <laughs> this no, is you, terrible. I don't know. Maybe you're having murderous thoughts thinking that you're <laughs> sitting there. I, 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 I don't know. But, uh, but I, I guess this is the, the question is a very leading question. But do you have a spiritual practice that, <laughs> that helps you? Sit? No, right. Sorry. It's like, do I meditate? No, uh, nothing special. Honestly, I, I, I think I'm just built as a person who is, um, I'm happy to sit still. And many people are not. I don't get antsy. I don't get, I don't, I don't get fidgety. I don't have to be doing something all the time as a person. I'm extremely boring to be around when I really, really, I can sit in a, in a dark room rocking back and forth, just thinking about my thoughts <laughs> and be completely content. Oftentimes I'm, I might be running, running dialogue through my head uh, for the day right, yes, yeah. or we're listening to music or, uh, if someone's got a laptop open with YouTube, I love my talking cat videos. Come oh. on now. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's no, I'm never bored. I'm not, a, I'm not a person who gets bored. That's not a part of my vocabulary. I was a little disappointed by that answer. <laughs> I was hoping for something more mystical. You know, you meditate on what it would be like to breathe underwater, or uh, as one of the fishmen he's played, but he doesn't. He just sits. His congenial nature getting him through this experience where he is the living canvas for other people's artwork. So the relationship between actor and makeup artist is really, really important. You know, for people that are obsessed with monsters and 
have dreamed of creating one and bringing one to life and mm-hmm. stuff. There's no greater bummer than one that kind of turns on you and the chair, <laughs> you know, that's like, you're like, when are you going to be done? I'm sick of this. Like, oh, man, my right. artwork is literally turned on me, you know? Right, right, and, right. Uh, <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Oh, but, but that's, that's the other true. reason why uh, yeah. your, your Zen in the chair is so appreciated because mm-hmm. not only are you uh, a pleasure to work with, but then you bring this thing to life no. and now all that hard work is finally like you're the the inhabiting spirit inside well, that's very kind thing. Of, well, well i appreciate the hard work too i mean i know what kind of artistry it goes into making that look happen on me and i know that in every creature i played it, it i mentioned this before it does take a village to make that creature it's not just me doing a great performance and taking all the credit for it oh my gosh the uh, the look is 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 informs so much of what I do, and that look is 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 created by the best artists in the world. I've had the best, most talented hands on my face over the last thirty two years. So, thirty two years is a very long time to be doing this kind of work. So by now, Doug has a method for finding each character. First thing that I do is read the script, and I can get all the information about the the creature from that. Then I have a meeting with the director. I want to get notes and quirks that, that he or she wants to see out of this character. Great. And then I go to a dance studio where I've got a mirror and a, and a big floor to myself. So I come up with like a, a home stance for this character. Uh, and then if I, if I do have to crawl up a wall or scurry on all fours or walk up on my tippy toes because I'm going to be in, in lifts or stilts or hoof boots like I am at a Saru in Star Trek... Then the next step is to the fittings begin at the creature effects shop. And, the, and now you see yourself in a mirror at the, at the creature shop going, oh, wow, well, that changes everything. And that's when you realize, okay, there, there are either limitations or enhancements that will either inhibit or, or turn up the volume on movement that I do. Like in Pan's Labyrinth, when I had these big ram horns on my head, a tilt of the head became way more dramatic because of the width of those horns. Sometimes I've been built, they build mechanics into my back, so they hide, they hide things along my spine, which makes a lump in my back. So it's like, okay, well, that posture that I tried is now affected by that curve in my back that wasn't there before. So with as Saru, thank heaven for those hoof boots, because once I got those on in my costume fittings, and in order to keep my balance, uh, the guy who made the shoe says, just throw your weight a little bit, throw your hips a little bit forward. Okay, so I did that. I noticed my arms were not hanging directly at my sides. They were hanging slightly behind my hips. So I was like, oh, well, I'm standing like a supermodel all of a sudden, right? Then I started walking around the little, the little uh, fitting area in the costume department. And, and, and as I walked, it was like, well, it's more natural to swing them side to side instead of back, uh, uh, um, forward and back like you do with your legs. Like when we normally walk as people, our arms go forward and back, forward and back. But as this, it was like it was the side to side swishy thing was happening on its own almost. So thank heaven for those boots because that was like, that's the answer. That's how what makes this one different is like he's, he is a supermodel leading with the hips and standing with one leg kicked out often and his, and his arms kind of behind him going, yeah, world, I'm here and I'm hot. <laughs> After 35 years in the biz, Doug has the experience and the accolades to have a lot of input on the character he portrays. But as with all actors, just starting out, this wasn't always the case. Like when he played a human kangaroo hybrid alongside Ice T who was also a kangaroo-human hybrid. (laughs) There were many of us, and so we had to kind of collectively come up with how are we going to play, are we going to be really kangaroo-y, or are we going to be just look like kangaroo? And um, 
uh, when when Ice T is the leader of your group in Tank Girl, uh, you will not be hopping like a kangaroo. I <laughs> I asked, it was put down. Right, it's fine. That's it was. I was it was just a thought. <laughs> crazy, crazy. crazy yeah, yeah. We, look at us. We, we look like kangaroo guys, and it's like, nah, I ain't doing that. Okay, okay good, good. Well, then we will walk like guys. And <laughs> okay. Now, Doug has appeared as himself without any makeup in a few films, and casting directors, if you're listening, Doug has a few dream roles he'd really love to take a shot at. I mentioned the Hallmark Channel earlier. I I want to play. I mean, I, I'm, I want to play a gray-haired dad of a grown woman who's needs some advice in her love life, and I'm wearing a Christmas sweater with a cup of cocoa, and I'm telling her my thoughts. Right. 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 And covered in prosthetics. No. <laughs> As I stop that. As a human. Did you hear me? Yes. 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 Sorry. sorry yes. Sorry. No. My, my uh, you know dream roles now would inv- would involve all the humans I have not played yet. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that that's that's one of them. Is is like wise old guy. Doug's soul and personality is so much a part of what Saru became. Uh, and you can see his work is just extraordinary and it comes through so many layers. I mean, I really think that I really think that the Academy, both television Academy and, uh, motion picture arts and sciences should, should consider giving him an honorary award. Yeah, I think so too. I, I agree. Um, and I think, you know, for, for all of his work going all the way back to bug busters, <laughs> <laughs> you knew, I knew you were going to bring that up. That yeah. we were not going to get through this episode without Bugbusters. And there's really no great way to like intro this. I think Doug does just a fine well, job. I, to, I have to say, though, uh, I, this, this, this first came up because I was on the set with Doug and we were just chatting between scenes. And I asked him, uh, what was the most difficult uh, makeup? costume job he'd ever done. And I thought it was going to stump him and he didn't have to think about it for a while. And without missing a beat, he said, bug busters. <laughs> it didn't, didn't even take a second. He says immediately, bug busters. <laughs> and you're about to hear why. One of my favorite stories, because it was one of my least favorite experiences. <laughs> so, <laughs> Isn't it funny how those are correlated? It, it's true. Mate. Uh, yeah, that's why when you're going through hell, you think that's going to make a great story, story one day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the movie was called Bug Buster. Uh, have you seen it? Of course no. not. No, I okay. haven't. So <laughs> anyway, Bug Buster. Great title. Though. You know, wasn't it though? Yeah, I thought so. Uh, Tells himself. Well, the, the, you know, the basic premise is there's a bunch of insects that are infecting this town or infesting this town and people are dying from their bites and stings or whatever. Uh, where are the bugs coming from? We don't know. Uh, people are dying off. Let's call in some help. Uh, they end up getting Randy Quaid to come in. As a former military general of some sort who is now like a for hire fix it guy. So he comes in like he has these Coke bottle glasses. He's wearing an ascot and like some military garb. He's like, yeah, let's kick some ass. I, I, I bugs dead. <laughs> OK, got it. So so he ends up we find out where. The source of these bugs are. It's a cave just outside of the town. So they get out there and, and, and people are dying off all the way. So it's now just Randy Quaid coming into the cave to find what the, where these bugs are, the source, and what turns around in the cave but the mother bug, played by Doug Jones. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my, oh, yeah. That's embarrassing enough. So, uh, yeah. And then, okay. So, so 
uh, he uh, is guard, you know, girded up with all kinds of weaponry. You know, so he's like, you, you there. It's just you and me. Let's get ready to bumble. And I turn around going, blah, 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 and I'm guarding my pile of eggs you know, that I'm, you know, for, to make more bugs. You have messed with the wrong exterminator, sweet chicks. He, he pulls out his, uh, you know, he tries to shoot me with bullets. Let's see how you like a little hot lead. I, I don't die. The bullets don't affect me. So he pulls out like a flamethrower thing. Let's see what you look like as a firefly. Try to burn me. I don't burn. He pulls out a CO2 gun and tries to freeze me. I don't freeze. So he throws all of his weapons down the gun and goes, Okay, man. This is when it gets weird. It's just you and me. Mono. Mono y mono. And he puts his fists in the air. Like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. We're going to have a hand-to-hand fight. <laughs> right? With a, with a guy and a six-foot bug. So I'm in. So we had the stunt fight choreographed. Uh-huh. And so we're, we're doing this. this <laughs> This, and we're, we're in we're in a cave in Griffith Park in Los Angeles, and uh, so we are uh, bouncing back and forth. We have to bounce off the wall and hit the floor and roll around. And it was a long scene with a handheld camera following us, so we did this entire piece of choreography. Uh, and and I I'm wearing now this this bug costume was again it was it was more of a costume than a makeup, but it was a hellacious costume. The farther you get from human, the harder it is. And so I'm I'm an insect with six legs a stinger coming out of my ass, wings, a head that was way up here. And so my, my real face is in the neck of this creature with netting and fur coming out of it. Like, you know, so I can, I can, I can barely see I'm itchy. I've got a head up here that's, that, that that responds to my head movement. Uh, and, and so it's, but it's cranky. It's like, it's very stiff. I'm just saying, I'm having a day in hell. And I, so, so I tell Randy before the, the fight scene starts, Randy, you've got to be very careful. Uh, these, um, my pinchers, my front arms are now, they're six foot pinchers. They go way out and they're fiberglass blades, basically. Like they look like a, you know, like a praying mantis, praying mantis maybe, or a, or a cockroachy kind of thing. Um, be, just be careful because I think they're pretty sharp. Oh, Doug, buddy, I'll be fine. Don't worry about that. You just you do what you got to do. Well, let's just film this thing. What do you say? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do it. So, uh, action. And we go our first take, and I'm swinging and swinging and we bounce off the wall. We roll on the floor. Oh, come on! Come on! You want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? We end up with Randy on his back, me on top of him, as planned. And cut. Oh god! And of course, you know, I'm this suit is heavy as hell, and so I'm like, oh no! So I get pulled off of him and put onto my bug chair because I couldn't sit in a real chair because I had that stinger coming out of my ass. So I'm on like a bike seat with the T bars like, leaning forward, going, oh god, oh god, oh god. And I told the the, uh, the young lady that was from the creature shop helping me. Uh, I said, "Can you, can you go check on Randy? I didn't see him get up." And so, 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 so she says, "Okay." So then all of a sudden, I hear from over the, across the cave, "Dog buddy, can you hear me? It's, it's, it's Randy. I'm fine. Don't worry about a thing. I don't, you do what you got to do. We go, we'll go again." All right, I guess he's fine. So the next voice I hear is a young PA, a production assistant, maybe in his twenties, going, "Um." Can I get some ice over here? I can't stop the bleeding. 
what? I <laughs> oh, I had gashed both of his forearms with these blades. But like swing and swing, they connected, and I had put guts in his both of his. He was pumping blood. Oh my gosh! So they bandage him up, and he goes in for take two. Yeah. Could not believe I'd done that to him. He was such a good sport. My gosh. Don't worry, don't worry about me. I'm fine, I'm fine, don't worry. Yeah, let's go again. What do you say? Yeah. I'm concerned about you. Yeah, isn't that awesome? And he's about to bleed out. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be known, remembered as the guy who killed Randy Quaid. In a bug suit. In a bug suit. No, you'll be known as the bug that killed Randy Quaid. The bug Quaid. that killed Randy Quaid. Oh, right. That's going to be the, t- the title. That's the title of my, the title of my autobiography. Yeah. <laughs> the bug who killed Randy Quaid. There you go. There you go. Oh, dear sakes. Oh, heavens. I don't know. I I don't have an ending written. Do you have anything to add to that? (laughs) I mean, it's a great story to go out on. I mean, it really is. It really is. I mean, have you ever, I never never asked you, have you ever found, what's the most ridiculous situation you've ever found yourself in? As an actor, we were just like, oh, what the, oh, oh God, why, why is this happening to me? <laughs> there, and, there and, did you al- and did you almost kill Randy Quaid? <laughs> well, no, I did not. <laughs> but there, there, that's a harder question to answer because there are so many of those when you're an actor because of the, the ridiculous lengths that we go to to get the shot in this business. You know, you um, there is one story that comes to mind. I uh, was doing... I guess it was probably my second movie of all time. It was uh, Urban Legends, The Final Cut. And um, the, were you there for this? Yes. You were there. You were there for this. You saw this happen. Oh, man. No, no, okay. no, no, no. I saw that. Well, I got there right after it happened. I saw the playback. <laughs> all right. Because so. everyone was laughing about it when I got there. So I was like, and you told me about it. Like, you want to see it? I'm like, yeah, I want to see it. <laughs> well, it was towards the end of the shoot and everybody was tired. <laughs> And it was, um, it was my first time being squibbed. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, now for those who don't know what a squib is, uh, it's, um, it's a basically an explosive blood packet that gets glued to your body. It's supposed to, supposed to mimic a gunshot when you get shot. Right. So my character's getting shot in this scene. Spoiler alert. Real quick. You know, I'm going to insert some trivia. Do you know Uh, who came up with this method? Who came up with this method? Sam Peck and Paul. Oh, really? Yeah, because back then people would get shot and they just kind of like fall over. And, <laughs> right. And that wasn't enough for Peck and Pie. I was like, no, I want to see. They needed somebody crazy enough to say, let's glue an explosive <laughs> to somebody. <laughs> let's put a dynamite detonator on someone and then, you know, blow it up. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so um, in the scene, uh, my character is sitting in a uh, an office, a rolling office chair that I'm also handcuffed to. And then the bad guy pulls out a gun and shoots me. And I'm the, 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 the blast, the, the, the force of the bullet, right. Is supposed to, um, push me through the wall behind me. (laughs) And we realize we're on a, a film set. So the reason, the way that they, they decided to, to do this is that they would plant the squib on me. Um, but to to keep me safe after they've planted an excl- several explosives on me is to that they they're not gonna you know there's this uh, thing called a, a pull box or a pull cord and when they're supposed to be get blown back the, this cord pulls you and makes you look, you look like you got knocked off your feet or whatever so they decide to attach instead of attaching it to me they they decide to attach the pull cord to the chair 
And so, uh, what's supposed to happen is, you know, I get shot and it pulls the chair and I go with it through the wall. Well, the whole time I'm getting squibbed up, everybody's like, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's, it's totally safe. It's, it's fine. Don't worry. You have nothing to worry about it. Just make sure you close your eyes at the moment of the gunshot. So you don't get anything in your eyes, but it won't go back on you. It'll, it'll spray out and it's fine. And as we're getting set up for the shot, there's this semicircle of crew people around me that start putting on helmets and <laughs> welding masks and holding up corrugated plastic. And I'm like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of my first movies. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. So I say, OK, I'll, I'll do this. They must know what they're doing. So what happens is we do the scene. The actor pulls out the, the gun, shoots me. Squib goes off. Pull cord pulls the office chair out from under me and through the wall. <laughs> and through the wall. and I, my coccyx hits the cement floor so hard and I'm pissed. <laughs> right. So we, it looks like when you look at the playback, it looked like I got shot and the chair made a break for it. <laughs> right. Right. Cause the timing was kind of off too. It wasn't like boom, shh. it was like boom. And then the chair. Oh God. And ran off from out from under you through the wall. <laughs> so like cut. All right. We got to do this again. Anson, go take off your bloody clothes. We'll get into you another set and we'll get you squibbed up again. Blah, 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 blah. So I go, I take up off of the bloody clothes. I get cleaned up, put on new squibs, put on new clothes. They set up the shot again, more plastic, more <laughs> welding helmets, <laughs> roll camera and go. <laughs> Actor pulls out the gun. Chair makes a break for it again. I hit my coccyx on the cement. Now, at this point, my tailbone is probably blue and purple, and I'm really getting pissed. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, all right, we got to do this idiot. This time, <laughs> you're going to have to just clamp down, just clamp down on the chair. Just go, just really hold the chair tight with your armpits. So to this day, if you go and you watch Urban Legends, the final cut, and you go to my near death scene towards the end, you will see the split second shot of me holding on to the office chair for dear life. Oh yeah. Because I know it's about to go backwards. But you're about to go for a ride. <laughs> and that was also about three in the morning. I was, everybody was. So tired. Oh yeah. Everybody gets loopy. And then oh, it's just, and it's Toronto and the winters are not getting any light anyways. And oh. And it's so, this is such weird moments in film production when like everyone's so exhausted and you're making this moment that's going to be like the climax, the excitement for the happiest or whatever, this high energy thing that's going to be experienced on film. And it comes from a group of like sleep deprived people going, oh God, what the hell? I just, can I get out of here? Can I go, bam, are you ready to blow up Hanson again? Oh God, boom. we got to replace the wall. I just want to leave. <laughs> The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode, Work Days by Matthew Gilvery, Piscoid by Andy G. Cohen, and Jenny's Theme by Jason Shaw are all provided by a Creative Commons attribution license. If you like this episode, please consider writing us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe to our newsletter at thewellpod.com. This support brings in a lot of new listeners to The Well and brings me personally a tremendous amount of emotional comfort. Thank you, and have a great week.